Wasn't that worship great? Um, and that's the whole point of Nehemiah chapter 9 we're going to be today. The whole focus is on God and on His greatness and goodness. If you want to turn there in your booklet, um, again in chapter 9, it's page 46 if you happen to number it. If not, it just says 9-1 at the top. Um, again, it's a great chapter and I'm excited to, to be able to dive into this. I know Al and Connie are here again this week. Al and Connie, where are you guys? They're, they're up here. So can we welcome them back? It's their second week. If you don't, if you're like, who are these folk? Al and Connie, I mean, Al was the pastor here for 25, 24 years and um, just uh, did a great job of leading this body and this flock and we're thankful they get to come back once a year and Connie's his wife. So those of you that know them, grab them after the service and, and, uh, and say hi to them. So we're continuing this series on Nehemiah. Again, chapter 9 today. Um, as I mentioned last week, we are in the last major section of the book now, and where the whole focus is on, instead of the work on the wall, now it's the work within the com- community, and it's Nehemiah and Ezra and some other leaders seeking to bring the restoral and the renewal of the Jewish people. And so, over the, I said this last week, but over the next several weeks, we're going to see some of the foundational, essential practices of a healthy, restoring community, of the kind of community when, for us as we're living outside of these four walls to, to be restorers in the places we live, work, study, and play, the kind of community we need to be our, our base camp, right? A healthy base camp. And I've used this image before, but when you're, if you're trying to summit Mount Everest, which I will never try... Um, if you're trying to sum of that, you've got to have that healthy base camp in support. And so the rest of Nehemiah, that's what it's all about. Um, if you remember, if you were here last week in chapter 8, we learned the first two essentials were the Word of God, commitment to the Word, and celebration were two essential practices of a healthy community. And today we're going to learn two more. And before doing the text, I just need to hit a few things as background. Um, we are back in the month of Tishri, which we were in last week in chapter 8. Um, it was the first month of the civil calendar for the Jewish people, a very significant month with three big festivals or holidays. It started with Rosh Hashanah. They had Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, on the 15th of that month, the seven-day celebration of the Feast of Temporary Shelters, which the youth got to take part in this week. Um, that's cool, that ministry that they do every year. And, and then we're going to actually be, when we come to chapter 9, we're going to be in the 24th day of the month. So with that under our belt, look at verse 1 of chapter 9. Verse 1 of chapter 9. And here we read, On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Okay, stop there. And admit it, if I did not stop after the first verse, you'd be very disappointed, right? So this, um, just a couple of cultural things in here. This sackcloth, the dust on our head is something that we don't normally do. Um, I grew up with burlap bags quite a lot. Our potatoes, would, we'd get them from the store that way. We'd play with them at home. How many of you remember burlap bags? Pretty rough, right? Um, the gunny sacks, we called them. That's what this sackcloth was like that they wore. They would put... Frequently in the Old Testament, you read about putting ashes on their head. In this case, they're putting dust, but it's, it's the similar thing. It's all an outward sign combined with their fasting of humility of heart, a contriteness, and a desire to live in repentance before God. So that's kind of what's going on. So verse 2, those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. 
Um, and I need to say, pause for a minute and just say something quickly about that. The foreigners that it's talking about were those people that were living in their midst, the Canaanite people, the Moabites, the Ammonites, who refused to worship Yahweh as Lord, had not come to accept worship of Him, and were still worshiping their Canaanite gods. We know that there were people who were not Jewish who had become part of the worshiping community, people like Rahab and Ruth, who had put their faith in in God alone, and again, were part of that worshiping community, two women who were part of the, the bloodline of Jesus the Messiah. So this, only, this is referring to foreigners or people who were not part of their community, did not gather with them. So verse 3, they stood where they were, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, and they spent another quarter of the day in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Uh, Jewish day was 12 hours, that's how they measured it, so they spent three hours hearing the reading of the word of the law, teaching from it, and they spent three hours in prayer. So obviously they didn't have to run to Applebee's right after service to, get, to beat the line, right? To beat the crowd. Um, can you imagine that kind of commitment to the word of God? And it isn't like these people have a lot of time on their hands, right? This is an agricultural setting. And any of you in agriculture know your lives are busy. So this just shows their commitment to the Lord. Okay. Now, in the rest of the chapter, we're actually going to see their prayer of confession and worship. That's what the rest of the chapter is. And this is actually the longest recorded prayer in the Bible, which is kind of cool. And this prayer doesn't take three hours to read. Aren't you grateful? Because I'm going to read through it. It doesn't take three hours. So most commentators believe that Nehemiah condensed it and he shortened it up for this chapter. Um, but before I get to the prayer, I want to say something about the structure of prayer. Whenever somebody becomes a new believer and I'm trying to teach them how to pray, I give them an acronym on kind of how to structure their daily prayer time. And it's the acronym PRAY, P-R-A-Y. P the, stands for praise, so I praise God. There's two kinds of praise. I praise Him with adoration, where I praise Him for who He is. And then there's thanksgiving, where I praise Him for what He has done in my life. Then I move on to a time of, of repent, repentance or confession, where I confess my sin before Him, keeping that slate clean every day of the sins that um, I've done that day or the day before. Then you move on to A, which is ask. So I ask God for things for people. I mean, two kinds of asks. I pray for other people, which is intercession, and then I pray for myself and my needs, which is petition. And then to end that time of prayer with, the, with yielding, I yield my life to God, I give Him the day, and I say, Lord, whatever may, whatever you desire to bring into my life today, I want to, I want to, um, to live into that and to accept that. And interestingly, I find this structure in this prayer. Um, the prayer begins with praise. They praise God for who He is in verses 5 to 6. And so above verse, if you're the note taker kind here, above that blessed be your glorious name, um, if you would write the word praise, adoration above that, write praise, adoration above that. And then they praise God for what He has done for them as a people. And we're going to see this is in verses 7 to 15. So above verse 7, you can write praise slash thanksgiving because that's what they're going to do there. And then the prayer is going to move on to their time of repentance and confession, which is verses 16 to 31. And before we write something above that, a couple of interesting things I note, that the vast majority of this prayer is given to confession, so I find that quite interesting. And the other thing I find interesting is that this time of confession is very much intermingled with confession and praise of God. They're mixed together, which is um, kind of cool. There's a back and forth. And 
you know, if you remember this diagram, I've used this before, this actually makes sense. Because as I grow in my awareness of God, I also grow in my awareness of my sinfulness so that the fact that there's this interplay and back and forth in this confession time kind of makes sense to me. So in the space above verse 16, write repent or confess mixed with praise. Write repent or confess mixed with praise. And then comes the ask in verses 32 to 37. So above verse 32, write that word ask. And then their time of prayer concludes with their yielding themselves to the Lord. And that's in verse 38. So above verse 38, write yield. So you see them actually, that's how this prayer is structured as we go through it. All right, let's, with that under our belt, let's, let's dive into the prayer. So verse 4. Standing on the stairs of the Levites were Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kanani. They cried out with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashab, Neah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah, said, that kind of sounds like the names of uh, the, the dwarves in, uh, in um, The Hobbit, right? All those funny, weird names. Anyways, funny names, not weird, okay, just funny names. This is the word of the Lord. Said, stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. And now the prayer begins. Blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. Blessed be your glorious name, may be exalted above all blessing and praise. Okay, and from this point on throughout the rest of the prayer, they're going to walk through the whole Old Testament history, and even their history as a people. And if you don't know the Old Testament story, where I actually have a little diagram, and we're going to follow it. Um, and for those of you that are big note-cakers right now who are starting to draw this whole thing in your book... Um, which is what I would try to do. I've actually got this on a sheet of paper you can grab in the back on your way out that'll fit nicely in here that actually kind of goes through the story of the Old Testament. Um, But it starts in verse 6 with creation. It starts in verse 6 with creation. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. Can I hear an amen to that? Now, from this point on, throughout the rest of the prayer, they're going to follow the history of their people with God. So they start with their founding fathers in verses 7 and 8. So verse 7, you are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give to the descendants the lands of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You are righteous. And now in verses 9 to 21, they're going to move into their slavery in Egypt, God liberating them from that that bondage, and then their 40-year journey to the promised land in that exodus. So verse 9. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself which remains to this day. 
You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground, but you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai, you spoke to them from heaven, you gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread and from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give to them. But, double underline that, right? Buts are so important. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen, and they failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked, and in their rebellion, appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love." Therefore, you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf, and they said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. I mean, how crazy is that, right? Or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of the cloud did not fail to guide them in their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. Now in verses 22 to 25, the prayer is going to move into the period of the conquest, okay? Verse 22, you gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their parents to enter and possess. Their children went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You gave the Canaanites into their hands along with their kings and the peoples of the land to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance." They ate to the full and were well-nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. Now, in verses 26 to 28, the prayer moves into the period of the judges. Verse 26, but they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. In Hebrew, that literally says, they threw your law behind them. Is that not really descriptive? They just took it. It's like throwing trash over your shoulder, right? Okay, they threw it behind them. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order for them to turn back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when you were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven, you heard them, and in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out again, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion you delivered them time after 
time. Now in verses 29 to 30, the prayer moves into the next section of the Old Testament, which would be the united and divided kingdoms, but they're just covered under like in just, in just a couple of verses. So verse 29, you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, of which you said the person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and they refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. By your spirit, you warned them through your prophets. And now in the last sentence of verse 30, the prayer moves briefly into the period of exile in, in Babylon and in Persia. Yet they paid no attention, so you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. And then verse 31 concludes the review of their history by referencing their return to the land. Something that Nehemiah and those people had experienced personally. Verse 31. But in your great mercy, in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And now their prayer turns to their day, after the exile, and after their return to the land. And again, this is their ask, okay? So verse 32. Now therefore our God... The great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship, would you underline that? Do not let all his hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship, underline that again, the hardship that's come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors, all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened, to us. You have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes. You warned them to keep even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them. They did not serve you or turn away from their evil ways." Does anybody resonate with this story, by the way? Does anybody say, you know what, maybe not the specifics, but that's like the story of my life. And then verse 36. But, we, but see, we are slaves. Underline that word. Slaves today. Slaves. Underline it because it repeats a second time. Slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, it's abundant harvest. It goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies. Underline that. That's another way of saying slaves. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. So draw a circle around that great distress. There's a reason for it. We're going to come back to that in a minute. We're in great distress. So while they were back in the land, I mean, you can see when I have the return, I've got these two dudes that are hitchhiking back to the land, right? They're back in the land, but in a sense, they're really still in exile. They're still in exile because they're still in bondage to a foreign power, and they're going to continue to be after this. The Persians will get replaced by the Greeks who will control them, and then the Romans. So all the way up until when Messiah comes, they're really still essentially living as slaves to other people. So they're crying out to the Lord about that, okay? And then finally, verse 38. Were they finished by yielding themselves to God? In view of all of this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. And you can see the agreement they made in chapter 10, verses 28 to 29. So maybe under 38, right? 10, 28, 
to 29, and I'm going to show it to you up on the screen. Here's the agreement that they made. The people now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and they bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. So that's Nehemiah 9, the word of the Lord. We say amen to the word of the Lord. Amen. Can I have a drink of water? That was a lot of reading. I didn't have that first service. In this chapter, I see two more essentials of a healthy restoring community, okay? A healthy base of operations that supports us as we live outside of these four walls in the places where we live, work, study, and play, seeking to be restorers and redemptive agents. And they are specifically prayer, a commitment to the prayer, and remembering, prayer and remembering. That first essential is prayer. A strong base camp needs that. Um, this whole chapter is a prayer. You know, we've seen all along in Nehemiah, have we not, that Nehemiah was a praying man? And so I've been able to emphasize multiple times through this, the, this emphasis on prayer. So I'm not going to spend the same amount of time that I have before. But what's really cool is the people are learning from him about this importance of prayer, and so we see them praying here. Um, and you guys are learning about the importance. The two things I have heard from most of you, the most things I've heard from people here is how you have become more aware of the people where you live, work, work, study, and play, and trying to be a redemptive agent with them. I've heard a lot of people talk about that, and I've also heard people tell me, I have, since going, getting into Nehemiah, before I act on things, I stop and pray first, just like he has given me an example to do. So you guys are all doing that, and that's great. But you guys know we need prayer so badly, don't we? Living as restorers. Because we learned for two chapters, chapter um, four and chapter six, we're in a pitched battle with the enemy and dark forces and spiritual places, right, that are against us. We need prayer for that. We are all ministering and living in broken places with broken people, and it is not easy, right? We need prayer for that. This whole task, this mission God is on, the restoration of all things back to himself, that's a huge task. We're not called, I'm not called to the restoration of all things, but I am called to the restoration of things one person, one place at a time, but that's still as daunting, is it not? And I think it's daunting because the reality that the reality, the reality is I'm not only ministering to broken people in broken places, I'm broken. Though I'm redeemed by Jesus and I'm on the slow road of being changed into his likeness, I'm a broken person and I don't always do it well. So we just all need to be in prayer as we do this for the places where we're at, for the people and for our own selves, Right? So, let us be a praying people. Um, a couple weeks ago, when we were talking about prayer in one of the chapters, I challenged all of us to pray for our leaders and our spiritual leaders in particular. And I have actually put together a sheet uh, on the way out. It's on the back side of the Old Testament story, but it lists all of our staff and the areas they're over. It lists the deacons and all of the ministries. Hopefully your ministry didn't get left off. A bunch of us worked on this to make sure we had it. Um, but all of the ministry is here. So we need praying people. I know there are people in the body who do pray. But please be in prayer for, for us, for our leaders, for our ministries. So let us be a people of prayer. That's the first essential. And the second is implied in this whole chapter. And it's made explicit in verse 17. So I want you to look at verse 17. It says, They refuse to listen. And failed to remember. Would you underline failed to remember and then put a box around that word 
remember. Put a box around that word, remember. They failed to remember. And this is really significant because in Deuteronomy 8, just before the people entered the land, God spoke to them about this very issue. And I want to show you what God said to them. So in Deuteronomy chapter 8, I'm going to be reading most of chapter 8 verses 1 to 18. But here's what God said to the people. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. What's he say? Next word. Okay, a little louder. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years, feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out. Your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. We'll come back to that in a small way later. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to Him and revering Him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams, deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing, a land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. Be careful that you do not, what? That you do not forget the Lord your God failing to observe His commands, His laws and the decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, which is our culture, is it not? We live in a place of great abundance, that when you get all that abundance, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but, what? Remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Remember. And what we see in Nehemiah chapter 9, and if you know anything about the history of the Jewish people, they failed to remember, didn't they? They failed to remember. But here in this prayer, thankfully, the people are doing the opposite of that. They are remembering. They're remembering their whole history. They're remembering their part of the story, the good, the bad, and a lot of ugly, right? And they're remembering God's part of the story. That word remember is so important in the book of Nehemiah. If you were to go back to the first page to the diagram where it lists the most important words in the book, remember is one of the most important words in this book. Um, If you remember in chapter 4, verse 14, when they were being attacked or threatened by um, Sanballat and Geshem and Tobiah, remember those guys? It's been a little while. The first thing he said to the people when that was happening is he says, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. So he was calling them to remember. And, And that's what this whole chapter is. It's an act of remembering, specifically remembering God's greatness and his goodness, his goodness to them throughout their whole history. His provision, His protection, His deliverance, how he, 
how he worked for their good time and time and time and time again. You know, the Old Testament talks a lot about remembering the importance of it, especially the Psalms. In Psalm 111, 1 to 2, it says, I extol the Lord with all my heart in the counsel of the upright and the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. And then in Psalm 143, 5, it says, I remember the days of old. I ponder all your great works. I think about what you have done. In Job 37, 14, Elihu tells Job, stop, stop and consider the works of God. There's a Middle Eastern proverb that says, lost is the person who forgets the past. John Eccles wrote, without memory, we are hollow persons, not only empty of a past, but lacking a foundation upon which to build the future. We are what we remember. And that's why in the book of Joshua, when they pass through the Jordan River, when God divides that and they go through and he tells somebody from each tribe, I want you to pick up a stone. When you get to the other side, I want you to pile up those stones as a memorial to what I've done for you. And any time in the future when your children see that or your grandchildren and they say, what is that? You tell them the story of how I redeemed you. The native Wampanoag tribe that the pilgrims encountered um, in, in New England knew the importance of remembering and of memorials. In his excellent book, Mayflower, Nathaniel Philbrick wrote this, and he's gonna, he got this from Edward Winslow in his accounts of their first years there. So by July of the first year in Plymouth Colony, Edward Winslow and Stephen Hopkins, they left the settlement with Squanto as their guide. They went to visit Massasoit, who was the chief of the tribe, in his village for the first time. On the trail, they soon came upon a dozen men, women, and children who were returning to the village after gathering lobsters in Plymouth Harbor. As they conversed with their new companions, the Englishmen learned that to walk across the land in southern New England was to travel in time. All along this narrow, hard-packed trail were circular, foot-deep holes in the ground that had been dug where any remarkable event had occurred. It was each person's responsibility to maintain the holes and to inform fellow travelers of what had once happened at that particular place. And Winslow wrote this of them, so that many things of great antiquity are fresh in their minds. Isn't that cool? You know, we live in a culture that's not good at remembering. You know that? We live in a culture that's not good at remembering. Um, We're no longer anchored to our past the way we used to be. As C.S. Lewis says, we are chronological snobs, that we only care about things that are next and are novel and new. That's the things our culture emphasizes, right? If, if it's not happened in the last 10 years, it's unimportant and it's irrelevant. Right, boomers? Okay, do you know that saying? You know, you know that, that's a way of young people saying things that are but back when you were alive, aren't significant. Your opinion's not significant, okay? That's how our culture is. Norman Cousins spoke to this when he said, one of the unhappy characteristics of modern man is that he lives in a state of historical disconnection. The past has nothing of value to say to us. And Twelfth, unlike our culture, we need to be the opposite, right? Our history and history and God's history needs to be important to us. We need to be people who remember. It is a critical practice of a healthy community. And we remember, it's critical. Here's why it's critical. Because if we're a remembering people, we will then be a thankful people and we will be a trusting people. So it is so important to being thankful and entrusting in God. 
So my challenge to all of us is be attentive to where God is at work in your life. Stop, pay attention, take notice, right? Ponder, think about it, and remember, and share those things. So I encourage everybody here to have monuments and memorials and testaments to the goodness and faithfulness of God, right? To his, test, to his goodness, both verbal and visual. So last week we saw the heads of, about the heads of the family. So as a head of a family or anybody in the family, like, remember the stories of how God has provided for you and your family and tell those stories. Be in the Word of God with your family. Let them see how God, in the history of His people, how He did great things. And I encourage you to even have visual reminders. Um, this is one we keep on the mantle of our fireplace in our living room. It is a small Van Briggle piece of pottery. If you've been here long enough, you've heard me talk about the miracle related to that, and I'm not going to go into it, but this is a visual monument. It's a memorial to remind us of God's goodness. So 12, let us take this chapter to heart and let us be a praying and a remembering people, okay? Let us be a praying and remembering people. And I want to do one final thing before finishing. I want to conclude by speaking to a great misunderstanding that people have about the God of the Old Testament, okay? That the God of the Old Testament is mean and he's angry, he's nasty and unmerciful, and he enjoys blowing people to smithereens left and right, right? Is that not the image a lot of people have about the God of the Old Testament? Um, this text, this chapter speaks so well to this misunderstanding, and I'm not going to read through the whole chapter again, okay? That takes a lot. That took a lot. I'm not going to read through that, but I want to highlight a few things. First, I want to point out what it says about the Israelite community. Here are the did-nots in the text. They did not pay attention to his commands. They did not obey his commands. They did not follow his law. They did not serve him. They did not turn from their evil ways. And here's what they did. They were arrogant and stiff-necked, mentioned three times in the chapter, they paid no attention to him. They refused to listen, mentioned two times in the chapter. They failed to remember. They cast for themselves an image of a calf as their God. They were disobedient and they rebelled, mentioned three times in the chapter. Turned their backs on his law. They killed his prophets. They did what was evil in his sight. They sinned against his ordinances. They stubbornly turned their backs on, them, on him and they acted wickedly. Quite the list, huh? Quite the list. That's what they did. If you're a note-take person, this afternoon, go through the chapter and underline all the verbs of what God did. I don't have time. It's, it's three times as long, and it's an amazing list. But I do want to show you one more specific thing in this text, if you don't mind. In Hebrew, the word great is used nine times in this chapter. We've already seen one that we circled in verse 37, where we learned that they were in great distress, okay? Two of those nines, then, are used of the Jewish people, and I want to show them to you. Look at verse 18 and verse 26. 18 and 26, at the, it's, it's at the end of both verses, they're on the same page. So circle awful blasphemies, circle awful blasphemies, and then down at the end of verse 26, circle awful blasphemies, it occurs twice. That word awful in English is great in Hebrew, it's the word great, so write great above it, write great above both of those awfuls, okay? So in Hebrew it literally reads, they committed great blasphemy. So that leaves six of the nine greats that are still left that we haven't identified, and all six are about God. Look at verse 32, near the beginning. It says, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love. Draw a circle around, great God, great God. 
That word love, by the way, that occurs in that text um, occurs two times in this chapter, here in verse 17. Now look at the end of verse 25. In abundance, they ate to the full and were well-nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. Circle great goodness. And then drop down to verse 35. And there it says, they were in their kingdom enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them. Circle great goodness. So that great modifying goodness happens twice in this chapter. Great goodness. That word goodness or good is used in this chapter six times. And in verse 35 that we just looked at, it talked that the spacious and fertile land that you gave them, the word gave or give occurs in Hebrew 16 times. In English, 15, it's the most important word in the chapter, the goodness of God, which we sang about. Okay, and you can identify all those later on if you want to do that. But there's three more greats to go. Look, let's start reading in verse 16. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen. They failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Circle abounding in love. Abounding in love. That word abounding in Hebrew is the Hebrew word great. So write great above abounding. So in Hebrew, it literally reads, you're a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, great in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Because of your great love, you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Now into verse 19 starts because of your great compassion. Circle great compassion. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail, did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. The word compassion occurs twice in this chapter here and in verse 19. It's a really important word. Um, It actually occurs four times in this text, the word compassion. And then the final greats in verse 31. In your great mercy. Verse 31. In your great mercy. Circle great mercy. In your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them for you are a gracious and merciful God. Form of the word mercy occurs twice in this chapter both in that verse and a form of the word grace or gracious occurs twice also in this chapter. Okay. Regarding the God of the Old Testament, do you get the point? Do you get the point of what he is like? Do you get the point? Who is the God of the Old Testament? Let Nehemiah 9 answer this question for you. Because these people were people who committed great blasphemies. They were continually, willfully disobedient and rebellious time time after time after time. And yet God remained true always to who he was and true to his name. In the words of this chapter, the God that we worship, He is the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps His covenant of love. In abundance, they ate to the full and were well-nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. They were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them. 
He is a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and great in love. For many years, you were patient with them. And it was because of his great compassion that he did not abandon them. In his great mercy, he did not put an end to them or abandon them, for he is a gracious and merciful God. And then the summary statement of the whole chapter, verse 33, says, in all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous, you have acted faithfully, while we have acted wickedly. Tell me, is not the God of the Old Testament, is he not a good and gracious God. Is He not a good and gracious God? Yeah. Can we, can we like say, yay God? Can we give God a yay God for that? Is He not a good and gracious God? It's grace. It's all grace. The Bible from beginning to end is grace. And that's why in the Bible, whenever I'm growing in my awareness of God's righteousness, which makes me grow in awareness, my sinfulness, that gets filled in by the most important word in the whole Bible, which is the grace of God. The grace of God is what brings those two things together. We live on the grace of God. And that is the God of the Old Testament. And I want to tell me, because in, in Deuteronomy 8, he said, I'm like a dad. I discipline my sons, but I do it I do it for their good, right? Who as a parent doesn't get this chapter? Who as a parent does does this not, like, it it, it hits you in the gut, and you're like, I totally get this God, and that's why he's called our Heavenly Father. So, I get that question about God in the Old Testament. It's legitimate. I've had it myself. But it's, I just want you to know it's all about perspective. So, in the future, if somebody wants to talk to you about that, here's what I challenge you to do. Take them first to Exodus chapter 34. Verses 6 to 7. You take them first to Exodus 34, 6 to 7. And you'd say, here's the place where God, Moses said to God, would you please reveal yourself to me? I want to know who you are. And God said, get ready. I'm going sh- to give you my name and I'm going to show you my goodness. And we did the name of God last spring, right? Yahweh, I am. So he, he kind of hides Moses and then he declares this in 6 and 7 of 34. Here's what he says. I am. I am compassionate and the gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin, yet I do not leave the guilty unpunished. So take him to that and then take him to Nehemiah chapter 9 and read through the story of the Jewish people. Because what we see is, is that God is a very good and kind and forgiving and patient and merciful and gracious God that that's who the God of the Old Testament is. And 12th, this is the God to whom we pray. And this is the good and gracious God who does so many things for us that we remember and what he's done for us. Two essential components of a healthy community. So, I'm curious, what's the most important thing you learned today? Most important thing you learned. This is kind of head knowledge. Like that, that was significant, that thing I learned. And so always in the back, there's space for this that you can write a word or a phrase. What's, what's the most important thing today that you, that you learned? You know, the head's important, but it's got to go to the heart, right? So I'm curious, how did God speak to you today? What was the thing you most needed to hear? What was God tapping you on the shoulder about? What was the thing you most needed to hear from him today? Just a word or a phrase about that.
And like we learned last week, it doesn't matter if you're hungry for the Word and if you're attentive to the Word and you're instructed in the Word if you don't put it into practice, right? So we always ask the hand question, which is based upon what God was speaking to you about, what's the thing that you're going to do this week in response to that? What are you going to do? So make a little note. How are you going to put this, that thing into practice in your life? So 12th, if we're going to be a healthy community, if we're going to be the kind of community, this strong base of operations that we all need, if we're going to live as restorers outside of these four walls, right, in the places we live, we work, we study, we play, seeking to bring restoration, the shalom of God, to that, we have to be a healthy community, a strong base camp. And we learned last week that means that we're people who are the Word and that we're people who celebrate. And this week we've learned we've got to be people of prayer and we have to be people who remember. So 12th, may we be that kind of people. May we be a praying people. And maybe we be a people who remember all the good things that God has done to us. So can we close in prayer? Would you stand with me? Father, I thank you for this chapter. I thank you for the, the amazing, awesome truth that is in this just recounting your story in the Old Testament and how you interacted with your people. And Lord, how that through all of that, what, what really shines and what stands out is you, especially in contrast to them and in contrast to us and how we live many times, of your goodness and your grace, your grace and your patience and your forgiveness and your faithfulness and your mercy. Lord, you are such a good God. And we just praise and honor you for that. Lord, in response to that, help us to be a praying people who, who bring to you our lives and, Lord, especially our work as restorers, seeking you to be involved in that, to continue to be called into it. And, Lord, may we be a remembering people, that we remember the things you've done, not just in the story of your people in the Bible, but in our own lives, and that we do not forget, Lord, so that we can be thankful and trusting in our walk with you. Those are so important. So we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, 12th, chapter 10 next week. And as always, uh, you are sent. We want it to be in Emporia as it is in heaven. So you're sent as restorers out where you live, work, study, and play.